Hi, I'm Mark Gewisser. Every month I write an in-depth essay for Business Day about new literature, art, theatre or culture. Then I host a public discussion about the issues my essay raises, to which I invite some of South Africa's most interesting thinkers. This podcast is a recording of the discussion. Welcome to the Monthly Review. I'd like to welcome you all to the Monthly Review. David Goldblatt died last year at the age of 87. In his half century as a photographer, he became something of this country's visual conscience. And it began with the unforgettable works in the galleries just behind you. And for those of you who haven't had a chance to look at the exhibition yet, or who want to look at it again after this evening, I'm told that the galleries will be open until 9.32, so you can choose between dinner or art <laughs> once we're done. Um, his series on the mines was taken in the late 1960s. He was born in the mining town of Ranfontine, and he took these images on and around the gold mines of his childhood. He collaborated in this project with Nadine Gordimer, who was also born on the gold mines on the other side of the reef in Springs. Tonight we're going to be talking about how these images resonate today. And sitting with me to do this, I have Carl Nell, who's responsible for the exhibition, a wonderful artist in his own right, and a senior curator at Norval. I have at the far end Dr. Sanda Benya, a sociologist at the University of Cape Town, who has spent much time underground herself, as she'll tell us, and who looks specifically at women in mining. And I have Charles Abrahams, the author of a new memoir called Class Action. Um, Charles is one of the pioneers of class action litigation in South Africa, and he is one of the lawyers who won the successful class action suit on behalf of minors with lung disease that was finally approved last week. So I'd like to welcome all of them. And of course, I'd like to welcome you. Thank you for coming. I've asked each of the panelists to choose a photograph or two from the exhibition and to talk about what it says to them. And I'm going to start with Carl. But Carl, before we speak about the images, the Goldblatt images that you've selected, won't you say a little bit about the room that we're in? Because um, as Ilana mentioned, we are sitting in an artwork. Thank you. Um, I, I think it is a, a very special evening for us to be sitting literally in this monumental space. Uh, which is hung with very modest material, uh, that of, of Hessian cloths, and um, the work of Ibrahim Mahama. And to see this in the proximity of the Goldblatt exhibition, Owen Martin, uh, the other curator here at at Norval, and I have really felt the need for exhibitions to really talk to each other as we build the program. And when we see this exhibition, The Labor of Many, um, by Ibrahim Mahama, in relation to the labor on the gold mines and the nature of national assets of 
global exchange, uh, the movement of commodities, we see the uh, the dialogue between these two exhibitions. Of course, Goldblatt's work focuses primarily on the extraction of gold uh, within the South African economy. Uh, Ibrahim Mahama looks at the centrality of cacao within his own community. And He's Ghanaian. Ghanaian, yeah. yes. Uh, and uh, to, to see how that is ap- absolutely central to that economy. But both of these endeavors are involved with a deep colonial uh, um, uh, construct. And um, each of them, I think, very intelligently looks at this interaction. So within within both their works, we find that both... uh, Goldblatt and Ibrahim Mohammed themselves have become international commodities. And uh, that uh, Ibrahim Mohammed has ended up showing in Venice, uh, in London, Copenhagen, and of course here in Cape Town. And there is a kind of modestness to his work, but something that is really profound, that is in the material itself, within its embodied history as it moves from uh, moving cacao itself to becoming a, a, a material uh, of the movement of commodity within a local community. And uh, so it is richly imbued in the matter itself. The labor of many uh, in this artwork is the labor of the people who made the sackcloth in Bangladesh, Mm. the labor of the people who farm cacao in Ghana, and then the labor of entrepreneurs in Ghana who then repurposed the sackcloth um, to carry commodities like charcoal. And finally, the labor of all the artists and and seamstresses that Mahama worked with to sew all this cloth together. And it's, it's, it's very powerful to carry the um, title of this exhibition, The Labor of Many, into the Goldblatt exhibition about the mines. Mm. Um, You chose this image, Carl, as one of the ones you wanted to talk about. And I wonder if you could firstly describe it for those who are listening to the podcast, and secondly, tell us why you chose it. Well, I think uh, what is particularly interesting for me is the um, the austerity of the image, the uh, formality of the beauty in which, uh, in the way that Goldblatt uh, chooses to photograph this highly structured composition. Carl, sorry to interrupt. Won't you tell us what the image is and, and what it represents? And maybe we should all just take a moment to, to sit where we can see. <laughs> Let's have a look at it, Charles. Do you want to move your chair around? Are you okay? So um, I think, you know, as I describe it, I talk about the abstraction of the image first. Uh, it is um, it, the, the shadows in this image talk to these, these deep concrete shelves that uh, create these very dramatic uh, geometric um, uh, um, patterns and that the 
on the edges of each of these shelves, one sees a raised edge. And these spaces seem to be uh, um, stacked bunks. And that they seem a little short for the average person. And it is only when one reads Goldblatt's um, annotation, the label, that the significance of this image really comes uh, into focus. He he, his, the title of this work is Mine Workers Bunks in the Abandoned Chinese Compound of the Simmer and Jack Mine in Germiston, August 1965. So all I've described is, uh, in a sense, the, the visual aesthetic of it, and then, in some ways, the structure of it. And what is important is that, as one extrapolates from this, we know that Milner, one of the contentious British colonial administrators who initiated the Anglo-Boer War, uh, was uh, involved in really grabbing the riches of the Transvaal Gold Reef. And after the war, he imported uh, 64,000 Chinese laborers as, uh, as cheap uh, indentured miners. After much resistance from both the, the, uh, the, um, the black and the poor white community after the Anglo-Boer War, all 64,000 of them, or those who had survived, were sent back to China. And in some ways, one is aware of this spiteful attitude from the British in regard to extracting assets from, with their colonial exploits. And Goldblatt's poignant image looks at the residual evidence with the informed eye and a distance pathos. There is a power in the image that is ambivalent in that it deals with both presence and absence. And that was the greatness of, of Goldblatt, that he was able to photograph what seemed quite ordinary or what, things that had been left behind. And as soon as one starts to analyze them, it opens out this real sense of history and what has occurred within our country. And uh, it's never the spectacular moment within his work, but it is this quiet mining of the information that has been left behind. So what we have here is an image of concrete bunks that, that, have, that have remained as, as some kind of memory of the men who once slept in them. And these bunks were um, the prototypes Right for the yes. mining hostels that followed, they were a bit. Uh, they were a bit longer than the, these ones. <laughs> right, but this is the way miners um, were housed on the reef from this moment on. Right, so it's almost the prototype yes. structure. Carl, the second image you've chosen. Excuse um, me. I think in in uh, no, if we go back, please. Hmm. 
second image. Um, Could you describe it first? Uh, well, we we see an image here of a conical pile of hundreds of um, lashing shovels and that they are um, stacked with their handles to the ground with their, um, with their uh, uh, sharp edges and the, the spade top at, um, as they uh, form this conical shape. And um, this was one of David's uh, uh, favorite photographs when I worked with him until a few days before his death on this exhibition. This is the work which uh, for him stood out. And um, in many ways what is really powerful in this is that there are, n there are no images of people but in in a way, each shovel is metaphoric of the person that was behind that shovel. These shovels moved the crushed stone uh, to be processed with the, um, the chemicals which create the yellow mine dumps in Johannesburg, and that every bit of dust on those mine dumps was actually humanly moved. And so we see this residue of labor and uh, in some ways it is again a monument without it being some, some image cast in bronze. It feels again like this, um, this sort of presence of absence and when I think of the, the previous image that we've seen and this one, it feels as though it is um, an image from the Holocaust, a pile of, of shoes or a pile of glasses which talk to a historical moment of, of stripping. And I think there's a, an incredible poignancy and power in this image that David found and chose to record. For me, what is particularly interesting that is that most of the miners who, who used these shovels by now are most probably dead. So it is, uh, if this had not been recorded, in many ways, there would be a great loss. Thank you, Carol. Uh, I'm going to move on to Asanda Benya. Asanda, I wonder if you could begin by telling us um, how you became interested in mining and a little bit about the field work you did uh, to, to gather the research that you've been doing since. Okay. Uh, thank you, Mark, and good evening to everyone, and thank you very much for the invitation. Uh, so the first part of your question is about the fieldwork, how I came to do the work that I did. I was doing research, in fact, I was based in Johannesburg at SWAP. Uh, those who do work around labor, trade unions, they will know SWAP is the Society Work and Development Institute at WITS in Johannesburg. And I was doing research on subcontracted workers 
uh, because at the time there were lots of debates in the country around the economy, the informal and the formal economy, and uh, the dominant narrative was that the informal economy operates outside and quite independent of the formal economy, and I wanted to go into the mines and explore this. And as I was doing research with these subcontracted workers, asking them about their lived realities underground, above ground, as people were subcontracted, they kept asking me about women. Am I going to talk to women who are also working underground? And this was in 2007. And in 2007, I had no idea that there were women in this country who were working underground doing the work that for a very long time I thought was only done by men. Mm. And so I was intrigued and I thought, well, I would like to study uh, what's happening if there are now women who are working underground. And the following year, I went and I worked uh, underground. And I thought when I'm doing this study, because it was something new to have women who are working underground, but new as it was, I thought if these women have been working underground for more than a year, I'm sure there are certain things that are very challenging for them, but there's also things that they've gotten used to doing that are no longer a challenge. So I knew that if I want to explore their lives underground, what are their challenges, I needed to be there every day and in order to understand it in depth. And so I spoke to one of the big mines that are operating in the Platinum Belt, and I asked for permission to go and work with mine workers for about three months. I did that in 2008, working with them, going down underground with them every day and actually doing the work, but also leaving with the mine workers and going out with them on weekends, basically leaving the life of a mine worker in South Africa for about three months to find out what was happening with these women. So I did that in 2008. Um, and so that's how it started. And that's how I, I that's, that's what, that's the research I was doing. But I was interested in the reason I chose to go and work and live with them was obviously because some of the things that they were doing, were no, they, no, they were no longer conscious of them and being there allowed me to be conscious of them. Um, and then you said I must talk about the image that I have well, chosen. So, that's, so, so bearing in mind that Asanda worked underground uh, uh, three months to begin with and then after that another year, is that right? Uh, and so, so in these three months I was obviously working with different groups, different mine, mining teams underground. Uh, and in my last team, I was working with this woman and she came up to me when we're above ground now. She came up to me to say goodbye, Asanda. It was lovely working with you these past two weeks. And I looked at the woman and I could not recognize her. She looked different. She acted differently. She was dressed very differently from the person that I had been working with underground. And I was intrigued, like, who are you? And she kept mm. saying to me, I am so-and-so. We worked together for the past mm. two weeks. How come you cannot recognize me? And then as we were talking and I kept saying, but you do not look like the person I was working with underground, she confirmed that indeed, when you're above ground, you're a different person right. from the person you are underground. And so I was intrigued again. I thought, well, I would like to spend more time now working with the people and trying to understand what it is that makes them change who they are between above ground and underground. And so I went and I worked for about 11 months in 2011 to 2012, towards the end of 2012, trying to understand how come people are so different about Ground. So issues of identity, how identity are identities are constructed underground, but gender was going to be a lens I was going to use to talk and think through and examine these gendered relations underground and how people understand themselves. So you've chosen a photograph from underground. Yeah, I have chosen this photograph and I was very tempted, I must say, uh, to, I was tempted to choose the photograph that Charles, uh, uh, Carol chose 
the one about the shovel mon monument. But I thought, hmm, everyone's going to choose this one because <laughs> it's one of Goldblatt's very famous photographs. And I had a difficult task of thinking, which other photograph? But this one really captured me, captured my attention. And this so photograph is called, it's called Shift Bus and Lashing Men in a Stope, Consolidated Main Reef. Ruderport, 1967. Sorry to interrupt, Asanda. That's you fine. Thank you for that describe description. Describe it and, and tell um, us so why you chose it. So this is a photograph of three men inside a stope, and this was taken in 1967, and it's safe to assume that the first guy, the white man, is the shift boss because Goldblatt does say that one is a shift boss and then the others are mine workers. The shift boss is the white one right in front and then right behind him, it's two black men. And I presume these are either RDOs or lashes. And I thought they probably lashes because I could not see whether they were carrying anything on what the other side. What is an RDO? An RDO is a rock drill operator, right. and I'll get to that in a moment. It's a rock drill operator. People are very central in the mining production and in underground. But I thought, well, so I was, as I was looking at them, the, the, the white shift boss is looking at the photographer, for me, it looks, and the two men also looking at the photographer, but at an angle that's quite different from the first one. And then with their headlamps looking up and reflecting on the uneven and irregular hanging wall. I was captured, captivated rather by this photograph, one, because of where it's at. Stopes in mining are quite central, quite central in terms of production, but also central in terms of safety. And I think in my work, central also because of gender. Stopes in mining, not only are they central, but I think in your work, in, in the article you published, Mark, uh, a few weeks ago, you talk about how the miner, the, the manager was broken because RDO's rock drill operators came to him and were saying, please help us. And the miner, you talk about this manager as someone who probably understood the real value of RDOs in production. And one could push that further and say the structural and positional power of RDOs at the point of production. It, so was, it was the RDOs who who, who went on strike at Marikana. It was the RDOs at Marikana who started the strike, but a few weeks after the RDOs started the strike, general workers joined. And a few weeks after that, a few women joined, but really not a lot. But when we're talking about Marikana also, and I'm hoping this is something we can talk about towards the end, is that the strike in Marikana, it was not just the RDOs or the mine workers, but the community joined. Right. And we can elaborate a little bit on that. But Back what intrigued me about the photograph uh, also is that this is a stope. This is such a small space. This is less than a meter. And a meter is something about this length. This is less than a meter. And this is where mine workers in South Africa, this is not just in 1967. It's something that continues to happen in 2019. This is where mine workers spend about seven to eight hours of their days every day, especially the rock drill operators. I have a small office at UCT and I get agitated just being there for four hours. Mm. Now imagine people who are in this uh, stope for seven to eight hours every day, tossing and turning, and it's very hot and quite humid underground also. You're not just tossing and turning, but also there's work that you have to do. So you are lashing, so you're doing physically exerting work, excruciating work in those seven hours where you are underground. And not only that, if you look right above uh, these three men, 
you see this irregular hanging wall. And for me, that represents the dangers that workers that are constantly looming, not just the dangers, but really quite literally constantly navigating and being face to face with death because this hanging wall can fall. And in fact, it has fallen many times. And the statistics speak about people who've died underground. So this was quite intriguing for all of these things for me. But also the dungeons, the stope are seen as these dungeons, but also it's where people often talk about this is where real men work. If you're a woman, if you're a cis, and I'm using this quite loosely, you cannot work or, or survive these six to seven or eight hours underground. So these real men are the men that I guess Goldblatt photographed in this photograph. And just like Carol said, I think for me it was interesting because it doesn't just talk, it did not, it didn't just capture me because of what's present in the photograph, but also what's absent in the photograph, which is women. Uh, but what was also interesting as I was looking at it is that it is these excruciating conditions underground inside the stove that have made something that women can never survive these conditions. It is these conditions that have also been used to justify the exclusion of women in mining. So that's, that, those are some of the things that captured uh, my attention as I was looking at the photograph. But also, if you look at the, the rocks and the in, just the intimacy in the photograph, this is 1967, South Africa, right? And you have this white body with two black bodies quite in a quite Very intimate close. space. Um, and, and that was interesting because, again, it is this intimacy, not just with workers in the stove, but also intimacy with machines, intimacy with all of these things that's often used to say women can never survive underground because they can never be as intimate with the rock, with underground world as men can be. So those are some of the things that were quite interesting. Um, you were also me. interested in language, Asanda, and, and what this says about the, the language of underground and the language of light and of voice and of sound. Uh, yeah, very interested, especially because if you look at it, it's quite dark. And uh, the three people, they're just relying on the headlamps. Now, in my work, what I discovered when I was doing my research is that in underground, so we rely a lot on spoken language, on spoken word above ground when we're communicating. But underground, actually, these headlamps alongside fanakalo, alongside gloves, so hand gloves, that's the like a totally, a, a complete language that's totally and only based on hand gloves underground. The right green hand glove and the red green hand glove. But in this photograph, it was the headlamps that captured my attention. That we saw, I mean, when you're just looking at this, you see headlamps and you, you presume that it's just about giving light to people. But for me, it was about this transmitting and conveying multiple messages that headlamps don't just face anywhere. And if you look at all of them, they're not facing the rock. They are all facing each other or facing the photographer but not the rock because underground again there's this idea that you have to respect the rock and part of respecting the rock means not looking directly at the rock especially not with your headlamp on. Um, so those are some of the things that uh, intrigued and interested me. Yeah. You spoke about this as being a very masculine space and a space that, that is presumed women would be excluded from. And when Asanda and I walked around the exhibition together a few weeks ago, and we looked for women in David Goldblatt's exhibition, and we found two. Uh, one was on a safety poster, mm -hmm. and the other was a black domestic worker, worker sweeping the stoop of a, of a white miner. It is a very male world 
that Goldblatt describes. And the other image you chose um, is of, of one of these men. Um, this image uh, is called Novice Minor, Fanagalo School, out of Beersfontein Goldmine, Clarksdorp, June 1972. Mm. And I'm interested in how you, as somebody who looks and thinks about gender, um, responded to the way gender is represented broadly in Goldblatt's images and how, how this image fits into it. I mean, this is a, it's a, I use this word advisedly, uh, given the racial language of the time. I mean, this is a boy rather than a man. Yeah. And I think that is why I, I chose it as my second one. The fact that this is a boy, and to me, he does not look older than 15 years old. And to be fair, I'll say he's probably about 14, could even be younger than 14. But what was interesting, and when I looked at this, what I saw was fragility. What I saw was fear at this Fanakalo school, and most Fanakalo schools are, un are underground, and in the gold mines in the 60s, 70s, most Fanakalo schools were actually operating underground. So this Would you is just someone, describe what a Fanakalo school is? Uh, so a Fanakalo school, it's basically a classroom like this one, obviously smaller, because we know that you cannot have a big space like this one underground. Uh, it's where people learn Fanakalo to work underground, so I talked about the headlamp language and the glove language, but the third language, which is the spoken one, is Fanakalo. And before you can start working underground, you have to learn Fanakalo, you have to be proficient in Fanakalo, because all instructions, all instructions, the moment you enter mind gates are in Fanakalo, even today. Not just spoken instructions, but also signs about safety and production. Everything is in Fanakalo. It is the mind language. And it's an imperative uh, language. Everything is, is an indeed, instruction in it Fanakalo. It is indeed. More so in 1972 when this photograph was taken than it is now. Now there are debates on whether they should uh, do away with Fanakalo or not do away with Fanakalo. We can get into that uh, later. But, but let's go back, back to the Back to the photograph. So I saw this fragility and this fear in this young boy. And I thought, my goodness, the fact that this young person has to gamble with his life. But, but it didn't shock me that he had to gamble with his life and go work underground because this was apartheid South Africa where gold was more valuable than the life of a 14-year-old black boy. Uh, so those are some of the things that uh, captured my attention. But also the fact that such a small body was seen as embodying an intrinsic ability to do work, to do mind work in particular. That is what for me was really striking, that because he was a man, because he was a boy, people automatically assumed that he could do mind work. And he was this trusted body, obviously. So what interested me, I was thinking about trusted bodies in relation to doubted bodies and women being the doubted bodies, that a woman who is five times larger than this boy, is still in 2019 not trusted to do mine work when a small boy like this one was trusted back in 1972. But it doesn't shock me at the same time because we know that when people are looking for novices, for protégés, they look for people who, who look like them, people who resemble them at the same time, right? So that this young boy was at the Fanakalo school in 1972 was shocking but not shocking at the same time 
same time because of that. But I, I also yeah. did some calculation, if I may, that if this boy was 14 in 1972, in 2012 when he had Marikana massacre, he may have been one of those mine workers who were demanding 12,500 rands 40 years after working underground. So that's another thing that was really, for me, quite powerful about this photograph, that when we're talking about mine workers, we're talking about people who've been in the industry for more than 40, 50 years who are still alive, who were like this young boy back then. When I look at this photograph, I think about a story from a film called Dying for Gold uh, made by Catherine Myberg and Richard Paklepper, which is going to be uh, on exhibition here tomorrow, in which you, you look at how when an older mine worker is sent home to die because he has silicosis. A place is kept for his son, for his young son. And when I look at this image, I imagine mm -hmm. that his father has been sent home to die and this place, space has been kept for him to come to the mine so that he can contract well, silicosis yeah. and die too. Mm -hmm. Which is a, a segue uh, to Charles Abrahams and the photographs that he's chosen. And Charles will tell you more about the silicosis case uh, through the images he's chosen. So let's begin, Charles with these two underground images. Shall I name them first? Yeah, please. So um, the one on the left is called The Night Shift Prepares to Go Down, 1969. And the one on the right is called Drilling Begins, 1970. And they're from an extraordinary series that Goldblatt took called Shaft Sinking, in which he went underground with a team of shaft sinkers. Over to you, Charles. Thank you. <coughs> what is interesting about these two images is the story that ultimately led up to where these miners you know found themselves you know in the mine it was the big promise the promise of <clears throat> the what they call the the land of the hairy jaw where there would be no starvation the promise of wealth you know under gold mines you know a promise far removed from you know where they came from you know which was in the deep you know villages you know in the eastern cape you know and so on most of these miners were young men, you know, as we've seen in the image, you know, prior to this. And so when they got to, you know, these mines, this is a world, you know, that they have been thrust into completely different, you know, from where they'd come. What I'd like to do is to read a very short poem or an extract, you know, from poem of Alfred Temba Kubala, you know, whose father himself, you know, was a mine worker and Alfred himself was a trade unionist. And, you know, the poem is entitled The Small Gateway to Heaven. And it says that when the recruiters invaded our homes and, you know, get you know, us, you know, to work on the mines, they would say, come to Malamulele at Mshlankuzi with its hills and valleys. They are the mountains of meat. There a man's teeth become loose from, ending, from endless chewing. And there where the walls are grumbling, where the stone face is shining, promising uh, bright wealth and merriment, where sorrows disappear at the wink of an eye, come to the place of the hairy jaw, where no starvation is, where starvation is not known. So this is, this is what they had you know, anticipated. This is the promise. This is what they've been wise. So if we look at the images, these you can imagine coming from where they've come. It is the, you know, it, it's, it's the expectation. It is the an anticipation. And if one looks at you know, how they cooperate, you know, how they work, it is one can imagine that that is what would have been you know, uppermost in our minds. 
I want to shift now to the other image here. So the one is, sorry, if you can just, you know, go back. So still on the same, you know, the very same, you know, two images where the, the one, you know, is the preparation going down into the shaft. And, you know, the other image is, you know, when they're ultimately, you know, underground and they are hard, you know, at work. Yeah, they are confronted with the reality of the world that they've been promised. Just want to, you know, carry on reading. And we joined the queues through the small gate to heaven. The shaft is the small gate to heaven. And we find, and we found the walls of our custody and degradation and of the work and of, and of work dark, uh, darkness to darkness with heavy shoes burdening our feet with worry for nothing at the place of the hairy jaw away from our loved ones. And I have seen the prison of a heaven, this crawl, which encircled this, encircles the slaves. And I saw it as the heart of our oppression. And I saw the walls that separate us from a life of life, from a life of love. This is their world. Now, if one looks at, you know, the image, you know, on the right, this is, this is, you know, where the heart of gold mining took place, the drilling, the drilling of the rock face, rock face into the silica quartz. Now, you know, if you understand, you know, you know, mining, you know, gold is located, you know, in a quartz and quartz is extremely hard. And this is where, if one looks at, you know, the miners, none of them, you know, have any protective, um, you know, um, mask, you know, on them. Secondly, you know, at the time, you know, when, you know, this was, you know, during the 60s, you know, and 70s, it was extremely uh, expensive for mining, uh, mining companies to invest, you know, in great ventilation. But what they, of course, you know, you know, banked on was that there would have been an ever, you know, supply of young miners, uh, you know, with, that would come, you know, into the mines. And as soon as miners, you know, contract you know, any disease, etc., those miners would then be, you know, sent away. So they were almost assured of the continuous, you know, supply, as you correctly point out, you know, the ones, you know, uh, minor, the young boy, you know, his father may have been a minor, and when he left, you know, he, you know, automatically took, you know, that, you know, space. Whilst they were drilling the most important commodity, which was gold, there was a belief and understanding that miners were prepared to trade their lungs in exchange for mining the gold, which they would never own, which would never be theirs, in exchange for their lungs, and in the event of them developing um, the diseases such as silicosis and tuberculosis, they would receive a pittance in the form of statutory compensation. So what we see here in this image is that the gold that they draw, that would never be theirs, but what they would receive in return were the dust that would emanate from that drilling. So last Friday, just, just a few days ago, you were in a court in Johannesburg where a ruling was given that, that appears to put to right the injustice you've just described. Indeed. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about that and how these images evoke that story for you as one of the lawyers 
who was involved in that class action okay. suit. And so can we move to then to the second you know, image? And this is, you know, <laughs> I think if there was one image of, you know, you know, all, you know, the images of Goldberg, and this essentially says it. You know, and this is an image of a banksman's chair abandoned after the closure of number three North Shaft Ranfantine Estates, Ranfantine 1965. And it's an image of a broken chair. Yeah. And that for me ultimately described the life of mine workers, what they ultimately got. They had, with this great promise, you know, that has you know, been made to them, the life of the hairy jaw where there would be no starvation, found themselves going through the small gateway to heaven and ultimately found themselves in a place that they could never imagine. When they came out of that small gateway to heaven, that's how they landed up, broken, physically, emotionally scarred. Uh, and the chair, the broken chair, um, represents that sense, the sense of abandon. Because once they've contracted these diseases, they were sent home, some with hardly any compensation. And they literally were sent home to go and die because there was an ever supply of young black men who would in turn take the spaces, you know, of those, you know, subsequently there. And one of the important things was, you know, for us as lawyers to look at what it is that we could do to try and right a wrong, a horrible wrong that, you know, has always, you know, that has been committed over more than a century and yet so many years post, you know, 19, is post-1994, you know, that had almost remained yeah, unresolved. And I think the silicosis litigation was that attempt at trying to right the wrong, you know, that has been committed, you know, historically. And the result that we've seen last Friday was an attempt at trying to right, you know, that wrong. There is a part in, you know, the book which I have, you know, subsequently written where I have said that for the surviving Miners and their family members, however, the settlement could never repair the damage caused by South Africa's gold mining industry. It offered only a tiny taste of the mountains of meat once promised at Malamulela and Mshlankuzi, the place of the hairy jaw. Nevertheless, it was a bold measure at redressing the legacy left by the despicable specimens such as Cecil John Rhodes. So um, the five mining houses have agreed to pay, six. six mining houses have agreed to pay five billion rand over the course of 12 years, but it could be more than that. Yes, so they have agreed to make a minimum guarantee of five billion rands over the next 12 years, but to the extent that the claims might be significantly more, they will certainly commit to paying each and every claim. Asanda, there was a, there was, the, in your writing about working underground, in, a, in an essay you wrote about Marikana, you describe the, um, the hell of working underground. Uh, you so ably described it again when you showed us the image of the stope. 
And, and you wonder in your writing whether it's worth it, whether the price the miners paid is not too high for the rewards they're getting. And I wonder how um, bo both you and Charles think about um, the, the compensation that miners are getting those who have had silicosis and the way the pay structure works as part of the economy of the mining industry today in South Africa. Hmm. Do you want to go for it first? Yeah. Do, you, do you want to go? Or you go first. Go ahead, I'll Charles. Go after yeah. You. Yeah. So, we, one of our, you know, the difficulties with, um, with the compensation schemes, you know, within mine, uh, it was never meant really to compensate, you know, the harm that miners, uh, you know, suffer. In fact, the the compensation for miners is specifically crafted under a separate statute than for non-mining employees. So when non-mining, you know, employees, ordinary employees, you know, get injured within the course and scope of, you know, the work, they get, you know, compensated under a regime called COIDA. Uh, for miners, you know, contracting diseases, their compensation is under a statute called Odimwa. Now, Odimwa, you know, is based on levies that mining companies pay, uh, and th those levies are called risk levies. The problem is that when Odimwa was initially conceived, in fact, it was conceived and, you know, with the support of mining houses. And the whole rationale behind it was to ensure that mining houses pay as little as possible in the form of risk levies. So that when ultimately miners, you know, do apply for compensation, they were significantly inferior to what a non-miner would have received, you know, under, under COIDA. Is that rectified at all by the settlement of last week? All right. So that is in respect of your statutory compensation. Regrettably, that statutory regime still exists. So a miner who, for instance, contracts silicosis in the first degree, gets something to the tune of, let's say, just about 50,000 rands. And, and this is silicosis in the first degree, which means you've got a lung function impairment of, you know, between 10 to 40%. Miners that receive, that have lung function uh, silicosis in the second degree, which is with uh, lung function impairment of over 40%, receives just marginally over 100,000 rands. And I mean, you look at, you know, diseases that are so debilitating that, you know, for the rest of your lives, um, you will never be able to function normally. What the settlement, you know, you know, seek to achieve is in addition to the statutory compensation is to provide what we call civil compensation. So under this regime, over and above the statutory compensation, a miner who has lung function, silicosis with lung function impairment of, let's say between uh, 10 and 15, 40%, that miner will receive 125,000 rand, which is almost three times more right. than the statutory one. Okay. And in the case of second degree silicosis, that would be 250,000, which is twice 
than what they would receive. And then they are accepted. And so the idea was really to try and make good, as the, as the name of the trust, you know, suggests, you know, tiamiso, you know, you know, to try and make, you know, good, to correct. Okay. Um, but, but notwithstanding that, the problem is with the statutory, you know, regime. And so we need laws to, to be changed. Exactly. Right. Asanda. Uh, for me, the question, I guess it goes again back to some of the things you raised in your article about the value of gold, and I want to add to that the value of life. Uh, and I don't think we can ever put these two close to each other, even with the five billion rands. Uh, I remember, I mean, being underground, it's a, it's a completely, it's an unforgiving, it's unforgiving conditions underground. And you would never, even if you were to pay me 20 billion rands, I would never go back underground. And this is 5 billion rands for over 500,000 workers and their families. So going back to the question you pose, I don't think it's, it's it, it can never be enough. And I don't think the point is to compensate for all of the things. Because again, these are people, I mean, in 2008, when I was doing my research, some of the workers were taking home 10 rands after deductions. So if people are taking home in 2008 about 10 rands, after deductions, that just shows you that it's not just lung disease, it's not just tuberculosis, it's a whole lot of other things that if we're thinking about full compensation, we need to be thinking about, this is just, with all due, it's just the tip of the iceberg. There's a whole lot of other things that people need to be thinking about if we are to fully compensate people for the lives that have been lost to gold, and not just lost in terms of death, but the death of people who are leaving that we continue to work with. I'm going to ask us to conclude by looking at a photograph that's not in this exhibition. Um, it's a photograph that David Goldblatt took uh, in 2014, uh, two years after the Marikana massacre, at the Kopi, uh, where the massacre happened. Um, and I'm going to ask you this question, all three of you, uh, to tease out uh, your thinking, and maybe uh, Charles and Asanda, you have more direct um, experience of this than Carl, about what has changed since David Goldblatt took the photographs on exhibition here um, nearly 50 years ago, over 50 years ago. So Carl, perhaps uh, we can begin with you. How, how you, how you respond to this image after having curated this image from 2014, after having curated all these images from the 1960s uh, on exhibition? Uh, I suppose what really strikes me is that this is an image of a tragedy uh, on, the, on the surface of, um, of the mine. And in relation to uh, what we've just been listening to, the real impact of uh, Goldblatt's work, particularly the, uh, the shaft sinking series, um, was profound because uh, if I looked at the books that came out before then, uh, the images around mining were sort of little pen and ink uh, drawings and had no, no sense of the, uh, the extreme conditions that were happening underground. So the images that we see in shaft sinking, you know, um, we're talking about the dust. Uh, it cost Goldblatt four cameras. Uh, 
and um, that uh, they were affected by the moisture, by uh, the the um, stone, and by just being in those extreme conditions. And so I think it was for the first time that uh, South Africans really started to understand what was happening at those great depths below the surface that you see in the kind of tragedy that eventually played its, its way out. There's actually a wonderful quote from Nadine Gordimer uh, in her essay uh, that accompanies these images in which she describes underground as a place of, quote, the subconscious, from where what matters most in human affairs never comes up to light, or does so disguised as coarse sentiment or experience, patronage or indifference. Mm. 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 Asanda, how do you respond to Goldblatt's image? Um. So I think before I, I say how I respond, I want to say I take full responsibility for all my words. And I'm saying that because of what I'm about to say, that I, I choose to use, uh, just in response to Carol, he said tragedy, that I choose to use massacre because I think there was, there was something quite intentional about what we saw in Marikana from the state side. And the reason I was saying I take responsibility for everything I say is because even the current president is implicated. So there was something quite intentional that I think we need to recognize. And for me, using the word Marikana, massacre, not tragedy, really puts the, the, the blame back to the state, the responsibility back to the state. But my response to it, I think I want to borrow from some of the words that um, my colleague here has used, abandoned and broken. Uh, we were with women from Marikana just last week in, in Durban. And some of them, you see that people are scarred for life. So when I look at this and I look at what hasn't changed because I think very little has changed. Instead, we've seen lots of other Marikanas around the country or we've seen the state and the police treating people, treating communities the very same way that they've treated Marikana, which is why in the Cape Flats today we have the army and no one, there is no uproar in the country. I, I see similarities. So what hasn't changed in the state, what hasn't changed in South Africa is that people's lives continue to be taken for granted by the government that they had put their hopes in. But I don't want to read that outside of history. I see this as part of history, the continuities, and I think it's important we acknowledge and appreciate the continuities. And I think the case of uh, silicosis also. But going back to the photograph there, I, I think when I saw it, I kept thinking, my goodness, it's been seven years only. And yet we forget. We forget. We are a country that forgets its injustices. And because we forget, we keep repeating. We repeat things like apartheid. We repeat things like the Marikana massacre. We repeat, and it's going to happen again because there's just no uproar. We are not appalled by the injustices that we see. So when I looked at that and I saw all those crosses that are, that are down, and I, I thought we are a country that forgets. This does not again shock. Mm -hmm. Charles. Mining by its very nature is destructive. You said mining by its very nature is yes. destructive. Yeah. Um, no amount of rehabilitation will be able to repair the damage. Yet what is quite interesting is that it's not just mining. Mm. It's people who in the process are damaged. And more importantly, as you've you know, pointed out, you know, sometimes in the process, as in this case, intentionally. And I'm, you know, wondering, one would have thought that 
with you know more than two decades on the line, we would have had an image either of what one would say a stock market, where miners would been able to show that we are no longer just you know working in these mines, but we are co-owners you know of these mines. The situation and conditions you know have changed fundamentally. Now I can tell you that there have been changes. Post 1994, one of the very first commissions that have been launched was the commission into mines. Mm -hmm. Two years later, we found that the is the adoption of the Comprehensive Mine and Health and Safety legislation. But whilst those changes have taken place, the situation of these miners mm. have not changed fundamentally. We might say mining companies might very well say, and I tend to agree that I think that the situation as far as mine health and as far as you know mine health and safety is concerned, except if we you know for you know the you know the the deaths that do occur, but from a disease point of view that they've done quite a bit. But in terms of the actual situation being part and partial ownership, you know, that process, I mean, that you've referred to a miner, a young boy who had started, you know, working in the mine at the age of 40. He'd probably be a rock driller, but the very same rock driller, as you correctly point out, would probably have been struggling, you know, to at least for, you know, living wage of, you know, 12,000 rands. Many of these miners who have given their lives in these mines have been abandoned. Some of them, they've died. And in fact, what I see is not just, you know, you know, what we see in the picture, it represents the destruction that it has also caused in families. Huge scale families have been destroyed. Every time when I go to the Eastern Cape, I, I see death and abandon. And yet, of course, people are trying within that, they try to still carry on to live. But I see families, I see communities having been destroyed but the greatest impact of it being felt by women. Because it is the women, when these miners come back in the old, what has happened is that all the risks associated with mining has been externalized unto these communities, have been externalized unto the public health. The profits remained with the companies. As you, as you speak of um, mining being at its fundament, a form of destruction, it strikes me as my closing note that um, there's something about the predicament of South African identity we all have to grapple with if um, we come to terms with the fact that what is at its core destructive in the way that Goldblatt's images and uh, your testimony has suggested that that which is destructive is at the very heart of our society, our identity, and our economy. And that seems to me to be a terrifying and sobering thought. <laughs> not, not an optimis uh, optimistic note on which to end, but I want to thank the three of you for... Could I just say something yes. before you, uh, you end? I think what is so um, extraordinary about Goldblatt's uh, photographs is that he, we have this photograph of Marikana 
it is silent. It is a testimony to what Charles and Zander have spoken about, but that Goldblatt never photographs the spectacular moment. Uh, he has a moral compass. He, he brackets what he is photographing. Uh, he is compassionate to so many people that he photographs. One feels this connection. There's no sense of judgment. Then maybe the one photograph that we spoke about um, in the exhibition where he photographs Harry Oppenheimer where uh, his, his camera seems to look down on Oppenheimer, and Oppenheimer doesn't look like the most powerful um, uh, owner of, uh, of sort of mining world. And so I think the, uh, the, the power of Goldblatt is the sense of humanity, and at the same time, this criticality around the society. And if there's any artist in this country, and I call him an artist, not just a photographer, he has left behind the most powerful document of what has happened in this country over a, peer, over an, over a, a series of decades. And I think we will only truly value it uh, in time to come. And Thank you so much, yeah. Carl. Asanda and, and Charles, would you like to say something in conclusion about Goldblatt's work and, and its legacy and how, how it strikes you uh, looking at it, walking through this exhibition? No, but maybe it's just a small little anecdote. Mm. <laughs> I've shared it with you, and I said to you that I think Goldblatt's lens looms very large. Goldblatt, Goldblatt's son, David, was very integral in the initial stages. Stephen. Stephen Goldblatt, as an advocate, uh, was integral in the initial stages of this class action. And it is quite wonderful, um, you know, having worked with him in the initial you know, stages, you know, of the case that I'm, you know, tonight here, mm -hmm. and being able to speak to some of the most, some of the very powerful images produced, you know, by his wife, by his, you know, father. Sunday, anything you would want to say? Uh, I guess for me, looking at the whole collection, is it raises a lot of ethical questions, a lot of moral questions, both for him as a photographer, and I think watching the documentary you shared with me, lots of those moral questions are also asked by people that he interacts with. And I'm thinking here about the woman in Soweto that he goes out to look for, who asks, you are going to go to Europe and America with these photographs. You want to take another photograph of me again, but what are you going to give me, right? So it raises a lot of, but not just for him as a photographer, but I also think of myself as a researcher, someone who's gone and who's done work that's similar to his, who has extracted from people one way or the other, and who's left and who's gone to UCT to work. So for me, it just raised a lot of moral and ethical questions that I think I'm sitting and I'm still grappling with. And I think he was also grappling with those questions. And in the documentary, he captures, he, he, he shows you that he, it's not things that he's, some of the photographs he's taken, he struggles making sense of them because they mute certain things that have happened in the country while others are quite explicit and are engaging with the history. Thank you very much. On that note, we're gonna end. Thanks so much for your contribution. Asanda, Charles, and Carl.